Scrum. You ready in Nebraska? Nah. Ready here in Kentucky? Oh, yeah. All right. We're going to get this party started. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Chromecast. We're in season four. This, I think, is episode 13, if my notes serve correctly. We're going to be talking about uh, King Solomon's Mines, H. Ryder Haggard, in the house. Lucky number 13. Lucky number 13. That's right. We're back again. And who do we have over there in Nebraska? What's your name, sir? I am Jonathan. And what about in Kentucky? Who is it? I am Josh. And I'm Luke. As I said, we're the Chromecast. <laughs> you might have heard of us. Maybe. But you probably haven't, unless you've been listening to our show. Maybe, maybe. Perhaps in legends passed down from your mother's mother, mother's mother to you. Mm. Yeah. Written in blood. Yeah. <laughs> on on vellum. <laughs> Portuguese tail shirt. Guy. <laughs> like hundreds of years past, right? That's right. That's pretty cool. We're jumping ahead, though, guys. We got to dial it back. That's true. Yeah, we got to dial it back. What are we even talking about this time? We're talking about an H. Ryder Haggard story from the turn of the century. And by the century, I mean, like, coming into the 1900s. So we're going way back. A few decades before old Robert E. You were born. Started doing his thing. Yeah, a few decades before I was born, too. Yeah. I uh, I can barely remember the release of this story. <laughs> It seemed like it was a big deal, but I yeah, I don't really remember. And you know what? <laughs> Warner Brothers tried to make it as a movie too. They did. That's right. We <laughs> and it failed. Off mic, we've been uh talking and drinking about movie uh talking about movies and drinking. Not I, drinking about talking movies. and drinking about movies. That's right. <laughs> we were talking about the jungle book. Uh yeah, there are a couple versions of the jungle book coming out. <laughs> this episode almost became the jungle book episode. <laughs> the rise of Shere Khan <laughs> Starring Idris Elba <laughs> Lucky for you dear Just listeners Just in a tiger suit like not even <laughs> Yeah no CG <laughs> it's, a one, it's a one man show it's just Idris Elba <laughs> yeah, I want it to be like cats right Where you can tell everybody's People yeah but they've got the suits on And we've got Bagheera And we've got <laughs> Shere Khan yeah it would be great I would watch that But we've dialed it back we're going to uh, we're going to rein it in. We're going to tell this story about the story of King Solomon's Mines. That's what we're going to do. But before we do that, we got to talk about what we're drinking. John, what are you drinking? I am drinking Four Roses bourbon. Ooh. Saw it on the shelf at the store the other day, and I thought I haven't had that in many moons. I will purchase it. Nice, very very nice, smooth. And how about you two? Uh, well, I just had some coffee because I was falling asleep. Which might explain why I'm a little wired right now. Uh, but I finna- uh, followed that up with some new Belgium fat tire. That's good stuff. Yep. Uppers and downers. Good, good. <laughs> I did the same. I had uh, I had a couple a couple cups of coffee, and now I'm mixing it with some G's and T's. I have some Seagram's Distillers Reserve Gin that I'm mixing with some, some tonic water and some chunks of lime. So I'm drinking like a Navy man. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. You'll be able to uh, uh, withstand malaria, I guess. Yar! <laughs> I'm a pirate Navy man. Yar! <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say which Navy. 
Oh man. <laughs> This is going to be good stuff. How many yep. G's, G's have you had? Uh, I've had like three G's alongside the T's. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty good. I may move over to that after I finish this. <laughs> We've got satire. it. All right. We can do it. Uh, okay. Got to up to do. So three drinks or three types of drinks anyway, times a few drinks on with that. Uh, and now let's talk about our one things. Cool. Uh, John, you got a one thing? I do. I just finished a book called The Lost City of Z by David Gron. It's about Percy Fawcett's expedition into the Amazon to find what he thought would prove there had been civilizations like European-esque civilizations in the Amazon and that maybe we had just always overlooked that. And it's about Percy Fawcett's quest to find this and his disappearance, as well as the writer's quest to uncover more about Percy Fawcett. So it's those two stories, as well as sort of an analysis of monomania, where people get obsessed with things. It's pretty awesome. You should both check it out. That sounds cool. Yeah. How about you two? Josh, what's your one thing? Well, I am pulling it up on Amazon because I'm not sure who the author of the book is. But this semester, uh, I'm teaching a class on insect biology to uh, non-science majors. And I'm trying to tell them some uh, some really cool stories about bugs, uh, the, the dangerous insects, uh, along with the beneficial insects. And I'm pulling the, the dangerous stories from a book by Amy Stewart called Wicked Bugs, The Louse That Conquered Napoleon's Army and Other Diabolical Insects. Um, That's a, have you read it before? I've read chunks of it, yeah. Okay. I like that book. Yeah, I'm skipping back and forth. Uh, it covers, you know, uh, disease vectors and blood feeders and, you know, various spiders and venomous things. Um, so it's not just bugs. It's uh, arthropods in general, um, mostly insects, but you, your stray arachnid here and there. And the only drawback to this book is it's not very well documented. One thing in particular that stuck out in my mind is this uh, example of a Toronto man who was experiencing low levels of blood and was needing transfusions, and the doctors couldn't figure out what was going on with him. And it turned out it was a large bed bug infestation that was uh, large enough to actually reduce the amount of blood this man had in his body. And there's no documentation. There's no date. There's no, you know, it's 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 kind of poorly documented. But then... Uh, if you do a little bit of research on Toronto bed bug exsanguination, you can find it. <laughs> you can you can find it. So cool. Um, it seems as though she really did her research and did her homework. Um, it's it's just you know uh, not plain what, what her sources were. She should have included a lit sided or a bibliography. Yeah, and there is a bibliography that's that's kind of uh, if you're interested in this topic then here's some other things to right. read but yeah no no uh no citations in this um, that sounds like a vampire cover-up in toronto i know right that that is a vampire cover-up bed bugs can't exsanguinate somebody can <laughs> they you would think not evidently they can <laughs> so that's my one thing bugs cool. uh my one thing is a different kind of thing uh it's a movie i just watched this past weekend and i hadn't ever watched it uh i've always seen the cover of this movie 
and it's been like on my, I guess I should probably check that out at some point. I just never did. But my wife DVR'd uh, The Virgin Suicides, which came out in like 1999, mm-hmm. uh, directed by Sofia Coppola. Have you guys ever seen that? I've never seen it. What about you, John? Kirsten Dunst? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've seen parts of it, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> it's an awesome, awesome movie. I I loved it. I loved it just through and through. Uh, I guess we're talking about sciencey stuff. The movie is really about, you know, uh, I mean, it's kind of a feminist uh, perspective on adolescence, and it has the the 70s as the backdrop in, like, urban or suburban Michigan. Uh, So it's about growing up and becoming an adult and feeling alienated, and, of course, there's some suicides that happen, so it's kind of sad. But overall, like, in the backdrop, Dutch elm disease is killing off all the elms within the city. Oh, interesting. And it's... It's really kind of funky because that uh, that pathogen, like that pest, is killing off trees, and it's a major uh, symbol within the movie for hmm. like suburban decay and the decay of morals. Uh, and it's really powerful, and it's invasive. It's an invasive species, so I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> I was really kind of nerding out, but I think the movie's pretty pretty badass. It's a little bit rock and roll. Uh, it's it, uh, you know, I'm not a child of the seventies. I'm a child of the early nineties, you know, as far as like when we were adolescents, I think we all fall into that category here. Uh, uh, oh, wait, wait, you're a little bit, you're a little bit younger. Uh, so at least for me, like I was, yeah, I sure. was a teen in the nineties, right? Yeah, me too. Uh, and so, but even so this movie with its placement and time, it, it just hits the notes about feeling alienated and being a teenager and all those kinds of things. Uh, and while while I'm not a woman or a girl that became a woman, it's kind of cool the way the story's told because there's these various guys in the story that are uh, kind of obsessed with the, the set of sisters that the, the story centers around. And it's told from their perspective about how they can't really truly understand the these girls positions like what they're going through okay and and it's just really powerful you know everybody at some point when they were in high school probably had a crush you know so it it's really powerful in that regard again it hits on i think some really uh cool feelings of 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 growing up in alienation and i think it's a powerful movie so I'm a little bit behind the times because this movie came out in like 99 <laughs> and I just saw it. But if you uh, get a chance, check out the Virgin Suicides. Cool. Sorry, I rambled about that. No, that's perfect. <laughs> that's three things that we've given you and we call it. One thing. So let's talk about uh, a listener message that we received before we get into the story. How about that, guys? That sounds good. We, we received a transmission via email from uh, a listener named Stuart. Um, and this is a pretty lengthy email, so I won't read the whole thing. But uh, Stuart says, good morning. I'm a longtime fan of Weird Fiction and a much more recent fan of your podcast. Actually, I've only just gotten on the podcast bandwagon at all, and yours was an early find. I haven't bothered to look much further yet because I'm thoroughly enjoying working my way through the backlog of seasons. That's nice. Thank you, Stuart. Uh, we hope you keep enjoying uh, the episodes. Um, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Um, 
He says, uh, I do want to tell you this. I'm a counselor at a community college, and a friend of mine on the English faculty and I had been talking about the idea of classes on weird fiction and sword and sorcery. He ran the weird fiction class this semester as a non-credit course covering authors like Macon, uh, Ambrose Bierce, Lovecraft, and the like. He asked me to do a guest lecture on Howardian and Lovecraftian protagonists. I told the class first thing that if they found anything I said interesting, they needed to check out the Chromecast immediately. That's fantastic. I, I uh, uh, responded and asked Stuart about this uh, presentation. He sent a copy of his slides, and it's it's pretty sweet. So uh, that would be a fun lecture to listen to, I think. That would be good stuff. And if you're new to the show because of uh, because of that class and finding your way here, welcome. Welcome aboard. <laughs> and uh, and likewise, Stuart, thanks for uh, checking out the show and thanks for the email. We really appreciate it. That, Mucho appreciated. What a boost. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what a what a huge boost. So thank you. Thank you again, sir. A gentleman and a scholar. A gentleman and a scholar. <laughs> All right. Speaking of gentlemen. Speaking of gentlemen of Victorian era England. <laughs> King Solomon Mines. Speaketh of. Uh, yep, we're talking about King Solomon's Mines by H. Ryder Haggard, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, this was published in 1885. It became a huge hit for Mr. Haggard. Um, <laughs> not Merle. Not Merle. <laughs> R.I.P. Uh, it, and it was, uh, it sort of kicked off the whole adventure story uh, <coughs> subgenre of uh, Lost World adventures. Yeah, Wikipedia claims this is the genesis. This is the first one. Of the Lost World genre. It says, let's go on a dandy trip to Africa. Mm-hmm. Let's let's uh, discover, quote, quote, <laughs> all of these people that we didn't know about and all of these things that we didn't know about and take all of these diamonds for ourselves. I dare say, there's riches and people everywhere. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? 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 I take those riches. And ostriches. And ostriches. <laughs> let's shoot a giraffe. And, and giraffes and elephants. Man, they shoot the hell out of uh, all the local wildlife in the story. Those was, dirty beasts deserved it. I'm not, you know, I'm not anti-hunting or anything, but I was struck in this book how they were just like, yeah, let everything shoot it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's coming right for us. <laughs> uh, yeah. They kill giraffes. They kill, I forget how many elephants they say. Seven or eight. Yeah. It's enough ivory that they have to dig a big trench and bury it and hide it because they can't I, take it with them. I think that is seriously probably, I know we've read some, some heady material and had some discussions about unsavory topics, but specifically that portion of this book, I think was one of the most unsettling probably was like the most unsettling thing that we've read for this podcast. Like made me the most like repelled. Yeah. Just the wanton destruction of uh, elephants for their ivory. Yeah. Like they, they, they shoot a couple and then they run off and they chase the herd and they run the herd down into the ravine and then they just start killing more of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the only reason that any of that entire herd of these animals that live you know, longer than we do. The only ones that survive, the only reason they do is because they were able to run away. Uh, otherwise, they would have killed them all just for the hell of it. Yeah. Just for schnitzen's giggles. Uh, <laughs> it's not cool and it's not fair. I'm on Team Elephant. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there's a pretty brutal, pretty gruesome uh, elephant revenge story in this book uh, that that I actually kind of enjoyed. That that was the, I think it's in chapter four and it's, it's when I got on board with the story. Yeah. All right, we're jumping around. Yep. We gotta, we gotta Focus. at least hit on some various 
high points of the chapters here. We are not going to go beat for beat because this is a full-blown, in-your-face book. Uh, we're not even going to get through the whole thing tonight uh, or with this recording. We're probably going to get to around the halfway point. Whenever we peter out, that's when we're going to stop. Uh, but this is the first lost lost world great adventure romantic sort of story right that's right and it doesn't really seem as though it starts out as a lost world uh story right because uh Mm -hmm. even though the the entire continent of africa is largely unexplored at this point in time there are uh english settlements throughout uh especially in south africa right right um and so h rider haggard himself actually lived for a time in south africa so he knows sort of what this place is like. And I think he does a really great job of, of evoking certain imagery. You know, I've never been to anywhere in Africa, but certainly when you read his descriptions of, of what things look like and how it feels to be there, it, it you know, he captures it, I think, pretty remarkably well. And, and I guess part of that's probably the reason that this is where a lot of those tropes are born, right? Like his descriptions of the the dark heart of Africa that we see, like Howard writing with with the Solomon Kane stories and whatnot, that gets its birth here. So it makes sense that it sort of flavors everything. Mm-hmm. But man, I mean it it just really falls in line. Like I was thinking about oh uh, the ghost in the darkness. Like as I was like read like reading up to the to the point that I got to as far as the feel of it mm-hmm. where Val Kilmer, like they're riding through Africa and he's like pointing out this and that and that and this. And the guy's like, I thought you'd never been to Africa. And he says, you know, I haven't like, these are, it's just, I've read so, so much. And mm-hmm. I've, I've looked forward to this. That's how I kind of felt here. Like it's, you feel like, you know, this, this wildness. John, you picked up a copy of this novel several years ago. Mm-hmm. And you said you had tried to read it before. Yeah, uh, I wasn't successful. It was good to have the the Chromecast to sort of make me read it, just to get through it. But it sort of opens when you agree as it's presented as this sort of like hunter's memoirs. You don't really get any hint of the adventure that you're about to partake in. Definitely, and and not only that, it it reads a bit dry at the beginning. I felt. Would you guys agree with that? I certainly would. In fact, I yeah. sent you guys a message uh, after I'd read the first few chapters and said something to the effect of, you know, I can see the influence that this story had on Howard, but Howard certainly perfected this recipe. Right. Um, and it wasn't until uh, chapter four or five when we're well on our way north into the the heart of the continent and things are going poorly for the party and, you know, they're, they're wondering, will will we make it? Do we get, or at least for me, did I get a sense of, you know, this is getting pretty tense and, and I'm, I'm starting <laughs> to really get on board with their quest here. So I guess I kind of, I kind of felt like I enjoy, enjoyed it more with the first few chapters as the quest was, was starting that call to arms. I think Mm -hmm. you use that terminology within the show notes, Josh. Uh, but the, the writing in the first couple chapters, I think it's easy, easily relatable. You know, it's told in this very conversational tone. We've got Alan Quartermain who's talking about, uh, you know, his life. And these are, it's a memoir for a son, those kinds of things. I found that really engaging. And I thought that it read, 
in a very believable fashion. And I kept thinking of like Dracula, the way that it starts out with like Jonathan Harker heading out mm-hmm. and he's riding to Mina and or Mina and those kinds of things playing out. I thought it was believable in the same way that like Stoker's Dracula was believable. Uh, it was interesting to me in that regard, like through, through the front end. Uh, and I guess his descriptions of like planning and adventure, I'm a planner mm. and I like to think about organization of things. And so when he's talking about like <laughs> what guns are selected for the adventure and those kinds of things, mm-hmm. I really, I really did dig that. Uh, it's, it's world building, I think, or it's, it's sort of building the, you know, the, the rules of the story. Uh, so, so I appreciated that, but it's, it's not flowery and it's not as Biff pow action packed as Howard. So this right. is a different kind of story. Yeah. Um, and now that you mention it, yeah, it was, it was interesting. The, the sort of, you know, bookkeeping and, and, uh, this is what we're going to need. And these are the supplies. Like I actually thought about the old computer game, Oregon trail. Yeah. <laughs> as they were, as they were setting out for their adventure. Um, but they were really well funded, right? Like, right. uh, and I wanted to ask you guys about Alan Quartermain because before reading this, my only experience with this character is from, uh, the comic book series by Alan Moore, um, the league of extraordinary gentlemen. I don't remember. Did Gibbons do the art on that? Who did the art? That sounds right. I, I don't know. Dave, David Gibbon. Maybe. I'm not sure. Um, but everyone knows what we're talking about. Like the, the league of extraordinary gentlemen is like the justice league for, adventure story heroes, right? So we have Alan Quartermain, Mina Harker from Dracula. We have Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, the invisible man, Captain Nemo. Nemo. Yeah. Uh, Kevin O'Neill is the O'Neill. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. So my only experience was, was that. And then the film adaptation where, uh, Alan Quartermain is portrayed by Sean Connery portrayed by in air quotes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he does a great job with his quartermain. Yes, of course. Yes, we of must course. go the diamonds in the heart of Africa. <laughs> Perfect. I, I didn't know if you guys had any preconceived notions of what quartermain was going to be like, but I was expecting Indiana Jones. What about you, John? Well, uh, I was just my cursorial readings in the past about the character after reading League of Extraordinary Gentlemen had led me to believe that Alan Moore had sort of captured that character quite well. Okay. That his reputation in England is that of this adventurer hunter, but he in the book and in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is a bit of a coward and a bit of a, I, I don't know how to put it. Like in the comic books, he's a drug addict too. He's trying to opium his, mm-hmm. his demons away because his life has not gone to plan. And it sort of lines up pretty well with what we see here in the book. He's, He's not the Biff Pow action hero of Pulps, as Luke said earlier. Yeah. Yeah, he I, – I was not expecting such a reserved, reluctant hero. I, I was expecting someone that was far more uh, on board with adventure from the get-go. Yeah. It says he was uh, 55, right? Um, he's largely uneducated, comes from a fairly poor family, it seems. Uh, he's read a couple of books. He's got a copy of the In Goldsby Legends with him that he reads from from time to time. 
and he's read the Old Testament, <laughs> right? Which I think is interesting. So one thing that I really liked with the story are the occasional author's notes that talk about the validity of of uh, Quartermain's like statements. Mm-hmm. Like at one point, it mentions that you know in his mind. He's, you know, the Old Testament and Shakespeare are both equivalent texts. Like he's mixing and matching references between the two. And I think that like, that's another instance, which lends like a, a level of like credibility to the story that this guy is a, is this great white hunter in air quotes and, and has an education to some degree. And he's relaying this memoir and the memoir is imperfect. Like he's that not quite reliable narrator on all fronts as far as factual information. He doesn't even seem to know what a Danish person should look like. That's right. Yeah. 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 Even though I think we need to give them the setup, right? We need to tell them sort of what's the deal here. Like why is Quartermain being called into adventure? If we're going to go with our storytelling circle. Sure. Yeah. Why don't you lay that on us? (laughs) Lay the tracks, dude. Quartermain is writing this book and presenting this tale of the time that he was hired by some guys to help find one of their brothers Mm -hmm. that this, uh, what's his name? Sir Henry, right? Sir Henry Curtis, Sir Henry Curtis and captain good of the Royal Navy have found Quartermain on this ship. And they think it's good luck that they have found him because, Sir Henry Curtis is on the lookout for his brother who has gone a treasure hunting in Africa after a row with Sir Henry Curtis. They've had a fight over inheritance and now he's gone off to find his fortune. Or he's they, afraid he's dead. Or they had a fight before, before the Curtis inheritance. got the inheritance. And yeah. now, oh, that's right. You're correct. Sorry, yeah. I misspoke. And yeah. Curtis would he's have given to him, find him to give him some money. Right. <laughs> Curtis would have given it to him, but he wanted his brother to ask him for it, or or he wanted the the brother to make the first move. It's kind of one of those stubborn family quarrels, you know. You mm-hmm. sometimes find yourself in, and you want the other person to make the first move, and uh, really, so does the other person. And if somebody would have just said, "Hey," Let's talk. Then everything would have been fine. But that didn't happen. And now his brother's gone. <laughs> so his brother takes off to Africa. <laughs> yeah, to look, look for fortune and glory. <laughs> fortune and glory, kids. <laughs> but, but Curtis is the big the big Dane, is what Solomon – or not Solomon. So, yeah, Solomon Kane. <laughs> what Alan Quartermain calls him. He's this big Anglo-Saxon Viking hero kind of guy. Kind of like Wolf here from our last set of stories. Mm-hmm. He's big, broad-shouldered, barrel-chested. Good is a typical limey Royal Navy type guy. Yeah, like the the Africans refer to Good being a little bit pudgy at one point or something, mm-hmm. but I don't I don't recall that it's ever pointed out. Maybe it's pointed out otherwise. But he's he's meticulous in his in his appearance. He's he's like a true blue English gentleman sailor, right? Right. Yeah, and he always wants to dress. Uh, as though he is part of that English gentry, right? Even yeah. though they're trekking across uh, very difficult terrain, he's still well-dressed and wants to be well-kept. Yeah. The gist of it is they hit up Quartermain to go on this adventure with them, and it turns out he knows of the brother who's going by the name Mr. Neville in the heart of Africa, and that he had sent him off with his friend Jim to go hunt for King Solomon's diamond mines, and they all sort of come to this conclusion they need to go save the brother. And, you know, maybe whatever, get rich in the in the meantime when they do it. And Quartermain agrees to do all this even though he doesn't really want to because he wants to leave 
a living dowry, not dowry, but like a fund for his son to live off of and go to medical school with. Yeah, yeah he wants to give his son an inheritance or do something he's gonna, for it. He's going to start a trust fund for yes. for daddy's little boy to go to med school. That's right. Make Quarterman great again. <laughs> he's <laughs> he's going to start like a Quartermain hedge fund or whatever. Gonna, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I think all of the characters, like, well, I shouldn't say all the characters. These three characters, I think, are great. Like, their characterizations are are very different. You have clear pictures of who these men are going into the adventure, and and I think it's I think it's a good like trio of people to sort of bounce ideas off of. That's how it struck me, like within this these first couple chapters of like striking out. So how does Quartermain get them ready for the adventure? Like what does he have in his possession? He's got a treasure map, right? Yeah. <laughs> Written on yeah. a shirt tail in blood. <laughs> in blood, yeah. Um we'll have to post the illustration to that. I f- I found it uh on the Project Gutenberg version of this story. So what's the story for the for the treasure map, Josh? Do you recall? Yeah, so I can't remember the character's name, but someone tells Quartermain Don Silvestra. Silvestra, yeah. yeah. Is he Portuguese? Yes. Okay. Uh he is gonna take off and look for King Solomon's mines. And this was twenty years ago. And he's telling Quartermain about it and he tells him, you know, I'm gonna go find it and if if I find it, then someday the next time I meet you, I'll be a rich man and I'll remember you. Um, and then he strikes out and and leaves um, later. And I, I don't remember now how Quartermain comes to possess this map, but uh, he has it. Yeah. I don't remember. Do you guys, can you guys pick up yeah. the thread there? So Jose de Silvestra strikes off with his ancestors map to go over Sheba's breasts and find Solomon's road to go to the mines. And he doesn't make it. He comes back out of the desert sort that's, of half starved and half dead. That's right. And Quartermain finds him and tries to nurse him back to health, but he doesn't quite make it. Yeah. And so that the legend doesn't die, Sylvestra passes the map and the story to Quartermain in case he ever wants to follow up with it, basically. And he tells him, you go after the treasure. Don't give this to anyone else. Don't let anyone else know. You go after it. You do this. So it's a lucky situation. It seems like Quartermain, for better or worse, is 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 cursed to be a hero of some type, right? Like, the guy is uh, 55 years old. He's an elephant hunter. Uh, he's been doing it. Like, what's <laughs> what does Danny Glover say in Lethal Weapon? Like, I'm too old for this shit. Mm-hmm. Like, that kind of thing. Like, the guy, he's exceeded, I think he says at one point, like, the average, like, life lifespan for uh, for an elephant hunter is like four years or something and he's <laughs> he's been doing this for like 20 plus years so he knows his days are numbered he knows he's he doesn't want to be doing an elephant hunting gig like to the grave he needs to get some money for his kid and it seems like lady luck keeps presenting these you know these happy circumstances to him so he doesn't want to do it but he agrees White to go on bird. this. Yeah, he agrees no, to go on this bird. expedition, and you know he makes the point. He's like, "I don't think we're going to make it out alive, but 
you know, might as well try. And he sets up a contingency. He says, I want you to pay me 500 English pounds uh, for my service through this. And if I die, then I want you to give my son 200 pounds every year for the next five years. Those are the terms, which Curtis and Good say, okay. So we make it to uh, the port town of Durban, which is in South Africa, I believe. So, yeah, all of this to this point is taking place in South South Africa, right? Yeah, and it's taken place in the first two chapters. Like, there's a lot of backstory and world building and and story in the first couple chapters. We make it to Durban. Quarterman gives the, the terms. They're accepted. And they start going about the business of preparing for this journey. Yeah, so there's a lot of... Other characters that, not a lot, but there's there's multiple African characters that are pulled into the story here. Mm-hmm. And while Quartermain is not an out and out, uh, you know, full blown racist spouting epithets, mm-hmm. uh, he's still a Victorian racist, right? Right. Uh, and and all of these guys are. And so the way this reads is pretty pretty distasteful as far as the way that. These guys are all good. A lot of these Africans are, are buddies along the, along the road. But at the same time, there's still this master-servant relationship that's playing out. And there's lots of characters that seem to be second-rate. Not just to the characters uh, in the story. Not just to the three white guys. But also, like, in terms of the way the writer is relaying it to the reader, too, right? You know, uh... How do you guys feel about that? I feel like this is the point to acknowledge those types of relationships within the story. I, yes, that's there. Uh, but you get the sense that Ryder Haggard probably did not. He was probably more progressive and forward thinking than a lot of British folks were at the time. Right. Um, I feel like he's above the average, at least. Right. Um, and you can see that in how Quartermain. I mean, yes, Quartermain still says, OK, you're you are being. Uh, a little too forward and direct with how you're speaking to me. Right. And I don't like that. (laughs) That specific instance in the story is just repugnant. Like it's ridiculous, right? Yes. And the character that we're talking about that we haven't really introduced yet is Umbopa. And Umbopa carries himself as though he is a regal person of higher stature. Right. Yeah. And, and that he is equal or more than equal to these white men. And so to me, for, for H. Ryder Haggard to have written this character at this time, that's, that's huge. It's pretty cool. He's, he's like a, he's like a well-spoken Samuel L. Jackson, right? Like, like in my mind, that's who that character is with some of the things that he's saying. Mm -hmm. And, and he, he can speak both uh, English and uh, Zulu. Is that the, the language that they're using when they speak to the, yeah. So, you know, he's, he's well educated. He, he knows the lay of the land uh, and he seems to know a whole lot about these Englishmen and how they operate. What do you think about it, John? Uh, like you said, the words distasteful, the words repugnant popped into my mind a lot. This behavior, of course, is of the average at the time. And I sort of agree with Josh, yeah, that H. Ryder Haggard, having been to Africa for a long part of his life, probably held, if not, I, w- I don't know if I'd go as far as to say progressive views, but definitely slightly more enlightened views, like realized that these were humans capable of the same emotions and wants and needs and desires as an Englishman. Right. That he probably was better than most of his countrymen in that regard. But he still 
there's still some just weird thing like Umbopa is regal, but even at that point, not to like get too far ahead in the story, he's this great person, right? In the story, he's one of the uh, he's a great leader, but he never progresses further than just these average white guys. Okay, it's do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I so. I haven't read all the way to the end of the story yet. I'm I'm still about halfway through, so that's that's why we're not going to finish the story tonight. Really, <laughs> I'm, I'm in the same way. John John's wrapped it up, but I think you and I, Josh, are about the same like midway point. Yeah, but doesn't uh, doesn't I can't remember if it's I don't remember where this was, and I think it's Quartermain saying this, but doesn't he say something to the effect of some of the the Native Africans uh, or or most of the Native Africans are you could call them more gentlemanly than yeah. some of the Englishmen that are colonizing the area. I mean, he says yeah. basically that early on when he drops the N word, right? Yeah. Like there's, there's an outright statement of that term being used at least a couple times. And then Quartermain says, you know, I find that term distasteful because many Africans are, are, are better, are better men than the trashy or the, the lowly, you know, Englishman, right? Mm-hmm. Like he makes that sort of cross comparison and he brings it up a few times, but there's still the perspective of how these, uh, these English Victorian fellows perceive their, their fellow adventurers, right? Yeah. They still see them as, uh, as servants, as, as pack mules, as helpers. Yeah. The help. As, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. The the book I just finished, The Lost City of Z, Percy Fawcett, who reminds me a lot of, of Alan Quartermain, he's this adventure explorer guy, and he has this notion that Amazonian people could have progressed to civilizations that were comparable to the the great classical Greek and Mesopotamian civilizations and Egyptians, but he still holds these views that they somehow had to learn that from white people, that that that's where the wellspring of humanity is that white Indians existed and built these civilizations. And that pops up in this bit here too, with the, isn't there some lighter skinned, the Kuanas. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, the, that, that they're more gentlemanly quote unquote and things like that. It's, it is progressive probably for the time, but it's still this, well, they still got it from us some way, somehow. That's how it strikes me. Like they seem, there's references to them being more, I guess Egyptian uh, yeah. in in their descent, like they are they are fairer skinned Africans, and so Quartermain even makes some remarks about the the loveliness of the women not possessing some of the uh, overall appearances of of the the more lowly African mm-hmm. like tribes. He makes the remark, and that's that's where it's really really obvious, you know, like the 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 clear racist sort of perspective of the characters, right. But it's just it's throughout the entirety of the story too, right? This whole uh, the help sort of perspective on mm-hmm. things. So we don't have to belabor this point, uh, I guess, too much more. But it's worth acknowledging. Like it's going to come up with instances of of characters that pass in and out of the story, like the way that those characters are treated, as well as the effing elephants. Like sure. <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> just be aware, native. Africans and native African animals are going to be treated poorly from from here on out. Well, it's that empiricism thing, yeah. right? Like, you know, the, this is a, a land rife for the conquering and ripe for the taking. <laughs> the taking, right? Yes. Yeah. So that 
definitely plays into this. And and uh, John brought up earlier the uh, the name of the mountains, uh, Sheba's breasts. Yeah, uh, we'll get into that as we get closer too. Yeah, for for not having many uh, female characters. Any, any women in the story so far, as far as I've read, there's still a whole lot of, like, flowery imagery. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, I, I can imagine being a Victorian gentleman and reading about uh, the great round-haired mountains that are Sheba's breasts. Randy. And just being, ooh, my. I'm going to climb those mountains. I'm climbing them now. <laughs> so they strike out. They head north. Uh, it's kind of... Uh, the great African adventure for the first bit. We've got Quartermain and his two compatriots, as well as the uh, the fellow you know African uh, helpers that are going along, as well as Mbota. Uh, and then I can't remember the the other guys. There's two Zulus, Goza and Tom. Yeah, there we go. There's a hot and tot named Vintvogel. Yes, and another Zulu named Kiva. And then finally, Umbopu, Umbopa. Yeah. So they're going across like the veldt, like the savanna, right? And they know they're going to reach some desert. But at this point, they've got a pretty large crew striking out. Uh, it's it's kind of a series of of little mini adventures. The way it strikes me, getting up to the desert, you have this great elephant slaying that takes place you have an encounter with a lion in the middle of the night uh you have a giraffe slaying uh, mm-hmm. am i thinking about am i missing anything here guys uh nope not so far you, yeah you have the the revenge of one of the elephants so it, yeah okay so yeah so let's talk about that so we mentioned earlier there's this whole herd of elephants they decide what the hey we need to go get our get our sporting on. So they they take shots. They drop a few elephants. The elephants take off. Uh, one of the bulls within the within the herd of elephants breaks, and they leave it. Uh, they go kill a butt ton more elephants. They're coming back, and that elephant appears. Right. Yep. And uh, Sir Henry and Kiva are uh, sort of running away. They're like thirty yards or so uh, ahead of it. Uh, Sir Henry, uh, if we remember, is the guy who's always wanting to wear his uh, uh, fancy clothes. And so that actually is almost his undoing because he uh, is running and he trips over his long cuffs, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And yeah, falls. he didn't want to take his pants off. Yeah, Good, or, or, good almost dies because of his pants. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, oh, that's Captain Good. That's not Sir Henry. That's... That's true, right? Yeah, it's it's fancy lad. Yeah, okay, um, <laughs> fancy fancy lad. Um, but Kiva doesn't he throw a spear into the elephant's forehead into its and in, in somehow that's gets, right gets maybe gets it in the trunk, um, and then for all that is concerned, he just gets destroyed, and his his death is just way more grisly and gruesome than I expected to read in this story. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought all of this, for being as horrific and distasteful as all of this, the slaughter is. And you know, Quartermain, he's this—he's this reluctant elephant hunter. You get the sense that he's just jaded by everything, right? Uh, but they're still taking taking sport of these elephants. And this one bull, I think, what does he like? Step on the the native and 
like rends him apart yeah, with his trunk. Wraps his trunk yeah. around him and pulls him in half. It's really well written. You yeah. Know? In it's- italics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in italics. So in doing some research for tonight, I found uh, a little quote from this chapter. I think it's from this chapter. Um, and it's about the antelope and the lion. And it was an observation made uh, by oh someone else. I don't. I'll have to add the the credit. I'm being like the uh, Wicked Bugs author. I didn't cite my <laughs> source here. Shame. Shame. Ding 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 ding. <laughs> On the grass there lay a sable antelope bull, the most beautiful of all the African antelopes, quite dead and transfixed by its great curved horns. With a was a magnificent black maned lion, also dead. What had happened evidently was this. The sable antelope had come down to drink at the pool where the lion, no doubt the same we had heard, had been lying in wait. While the antelope was drinking, the lion had sprung upon him, but was received upon the sharp curved horns and transfixed. I once saw the same thing happen before. The lion, unable to free himself, had torn and bitten at the back and neck of the bull, which, maddened with fear and pain, had rushed on till it dropped dead. Um, And so the idea here is that uh, Haggard may have inserted this as a sort of a sly reference to how England was treating Africa. The lion is one of the symbols associated with England and the antelope is a prominent species in Africa. And so they have entangled one another and become entwined and both have died symbolizing this relationship that the English colonists, uh, are are starting and are having with the native people uh-huh. and the biota of Africa. Um, so both of these things have become un- entangled and both have died um, because of that entanglement. And um, whoever wrote this, I'll, I'll give credit in the show notes uh, state that this is pretty similar to George Orwell's work, uh, shooting the elephant, which I've never read, but would be interested in checking out. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of neat that there's this level of subtext and storytelling going on with a story that was written before 1900, like for all of these racial elements to have this kind of commentary really coming out. And like, what is a, a great white hunter traversing across Africa tell, at least as far as I've read, Yeah, like to have those kinds of storytelling elements and plot, played in there is pretty neat. And this, this, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, a proverb, I guess about the, uh, the antelope and the lion, you know, one has attacked the other to get what it wants, but neither of them make it out alive. And so I think it's very telling that that is the sort of, uh, antagonistic view that the English had toward the, uh, natives of Africa and, where is it going to go? You know, it's uh, yeah, I think it's pretty neat that this is there uh, during the Victorian era in an H. Rider Haggard adventure novel. His first. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So this is the first of the Alan Quartermain stories, right? So from what I read, there's this and then Alan Quartermain is the sequel. And those two seem to be a cohesive kind of referential like sequence of stories. Okay. And then there's another set of stories that maybe they're like the the next series that came after and i don't know if there's any distinction as far as what's what's the superior quarter main stories to read uh i know this is you know heralded as a great one yeah but i don't know if the later ones are better or worse do you guys know anything about that john do you know nine okay. oh. nope me either i bet by the time we get to the end of the story and research the importance of this within the larger quarter main like 
mythos <laughs> to the cycle of stories will yeah. be able to answer that the quintessential quarterman <laughs> dude there you, <laughs> go. there you go look at you you don't get to be alliterative with cues very often that's true so we're moving along uh we're killing a lot of elephants uh, there's another instance of umbopa sort of uh I don't know, portraying himself as being very noble and some hints, I guess, some breadcrumbs that Ryder Haggard has thrown in here. Being uh, uppity. That's what that's what the white boys are saying. <laughs> yes, and that's, that's true, yeah. And it's just obnoxious, right? Like <laughs> To them, yeah. Oh, yeah. They can't stand it, especially Quarterman. He can't stand it. So, Umbopa calls someone in Kubu, which means elephant. And rather it's than... Sir Henry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he addresses Sir Henry as in Kubu. Um, and Quartermain says, look, you shouldn't call him that. This is, you're, you're speaking to him as though you're his equal. And Umbopa says, how dost thou know I am not the equal of the Nkosi I serve? Umbopa is, he comes out as just the coolest character. I don't know what's going <laughs> to happen with this guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's regal. Something, something's up there with the way that he's portrayed, but he is just like the coolest cat in the room. Like the story around him progressively just gets like the, it's tantalizing, right? Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting that he gets mad that Sir Henry gets called Inkubu, but he has his own Zulu name. Quartermain does. He's Makumazan. Oh, that's right. That's right. What's what? it? Uh, but, like doesn't sleep or something? Yeah. Stays up in the middle of the night. The uh, LibriVox. Uh, reader said Makumazan. I don't know if that's the right pronunciation. I'm sorry, I didn't pronounce it correctly. Mm. I'm, I'm just wondering. my Zulu's a touch rusty. <laughs> I don't know which is correct. So, I like Makumazan. Josh and I were talking about this before before recording, but s- somewhere there was a comment about the LibriVox recordings, and it is truly like Billy Bob Thornton's mm-hmm. the the dude that's narrating. He has like this cadence and this voice. That really is a Billy Bob Thornton sort of riff, which is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Like Sling Blade Billy Bob Thornton? No, or? no, like Billy Bob being interviewed for something, like his real delivery. Cool. Yeah. So, yeah, they hit the desert. It's pretty cool, like the landscape here. These these adventurers go through discrete uh, physiographic regions. Uh, and I don't know. I've never been to Africa, so I don't know how really this transition from like – Velt to desert, from desert to mountains, from mountains to luscious green, trans, trans, like happens. Uh, but Haggard actually comments on it at one point. He says that it's, it's curious how there's this immediate transition, but regardless, that's the way the story goes. Yeah. And he doesn't say it in that regard. It's, it's much more believable. But I think that that was an effective way to at least acknowledge that, hey, you're getting these segues between. Uh, plot events uh, through these like distinct sort of ecosystems. Yeah, they're going through grasslands, veldt, to dry grasslands, to desert, and they're running low on water, and that's a big deal. Right, John? We only need bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> they, find a, they find a local person where they can uh, leave some supplies because uh, they can't carry everything with them across the desert. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they leave a bunch of their guns. They take enough guns though to keep to keep adventuring. Uh, but they had an arsenal. Yeah, they oh. had. Well, they had a wagon, and they <laughs> they were losing all their oxen. Right, like, didn't one of the uh, the African 
folks like accidentally shoot one and kill it. And uh, yeah, he started with twenty, which was four more than they needed, and they lose it, lost at least three or five on the journey yeah. through various instances. Yeah, what you're talking about, Josh, is when they're getting ready to go into the desert. He's dropped. They have to leave some of their gear behind, and the guy they're leaving it with touches one of the rifles and it shoots his ox and yeah. kills it. And he wants Quartermain to pay him back for it. And Quartermain makes up some story about like being a magician that will curse him if he asks for more money and some nonsense like that. But that's some uh, foreshadowing, right? It is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It, and it, yeah, it is like we get this, uh, the, the superior mental faculties of the, of the white man within the system. You know, we have, we have lots of, of native Africans that, that believe in uh, the supernatural and superstition, mm-hmm. right? And it, I don't know, it, it draws to mind, like, uh, if you, if we encountered a uh, society that was so far technologically advanced beyond what we know today, how would we be able to differentiate that from magic? Probably shouldn't really think about that in those terms <laughs> with the story. But yeah, we, we're leaving some of our stuff behind. We're going into this harsh ecosystem. We're running out of water. And there's a, a, a good bit of this section of the story where they really are rationing water and worrying about finding a new source of water. Yeah, they take a handful of extra kefir along with them to carry like gourds of water. They get to the halfway point to where they think there is an oasis. Uh, and they do a refill. And then they say, adios, guys. And now they're like stripped down to the core party, and they're 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 dying of dehydration, uh, and they're looking for a water source. And they've got this map that alludes to some sort of oasis out in the desert landscape, right? Mm-hmm. But keep in mind, this map is twenty years old. The Portuguese blood map. The Portuguese blood map. It's like three hundred. Yeah, years old. it's oh, that's right. It's yeah. three hundred years old. He yeah, he acquired it twenty years ago. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. real old. Yeah. Um, but it holds some hope for them that there is the spot of the bad water. If they can just get to the spot of the bad water, maybe they'll survive. And they almost lose hope, but they do sort of stumble upon this hill that they go up, and the bad water is on top of it, right? Yeah. In a step, sort of? I guess, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's yes, like a, like a butte or something, right? Yeah, it's, it sounds like it's just a weird depression that is a, a wetland or a marsh or something right and the water is stagnant and not great but you're a butte <laughs> but they're <laughs> thank you but they're they're gonna drink it anyway because they're dying of thirst so in vent vogel he know he's like i smell water and all the white guys are like nah i don't think so man water doesn't go up on a hill Quartermain says no doubt it is in the clouds and in about two months hence it will fall and wash our bones what a jerk what yeah. is, he doesn't he can't he can't uh be he can't take this uh uh wisdom this knowledge that this guy might have that he doesn't have and i don't know that's how i took that the kind of a snarky thing to say yeah and we see those kinds of things in a far more mystical sense pop up with solomon kane like with the stories that we read there uh like he's dismissive of of like the the ancient lore, like mm-hmm. the, the real history of things just because he's the, you know, the white man of like, of real history, what he's familiar with. And he's, he's a, the Christian, right? He's a Puritan. So this uh, devil magic, you know, it can't be. Um, 
But luckily for Quartermain, he's wrong. Um, and Vent Vogel knows that there's water and they find the, the place of the bad water and they're able to make it past that. So this is about the halfway point. And so from here, they can just see the glimmer of, of Sheba's breasts. Yep. Right? Oh, In the distance. They can yep. see the boobies. The, the mountains uh, that are on the map. The, these paired round mountains. And uh, I found a cool article uh, called As Europe is to Africa, so is man to woman. Gendering landscape in Ryder Haggard's Not of the Lily uh, by Lindy Stiebel. And she says, it appears that unconsciously, Haggard projected a good deal of his latent sexual desire and that of his age, which was one of the determined uh, one of determined public prudery onto his feminized African landscape. It's difficult to con- uh, contradict with that because uh, he Haggard is really using some pretty evocative language to describe these mountains, right? Um, their bases swell gently up from the plain, looking at that distance, perfectly round and smooth. Ooh. And on the top of each was a vast, round hillock covered with snow, exactly corresponding to the nipple on the female breast. Wow. Got to loosen up the collar here. Yeah. Uh, so whether or not he was <laughs> he was conscious of this, uh, he definitely has feminized this landscape. It's It uh, marks a certain passage, like a certain... Uh, point that they need to to get past um, and it's a gateway into the unknown land of the Kukuanas. yeah um, so the there's this uh, I guess connection between f- females and the hidden the secret the unknown throughout literature uh, that they throw out there and that's definitely present here and to take it even further you could say Africa is viewed as the conquerable item by the English men another adjective that they would throw at women a lot. Right. And yeah. you know, that all they do is talk about how they're going to climb Sheba's left breast, right? Like over and over. <laughs> yeah. They're going to, they're going to conquer it. So I think that Howard or Howard, I think, <laughs> that, I think that Haggard, uh, I, I mean, I think this is intentional. I think there's at least recognition as far as, uh, the the words that he's using in describing Sheba's breasts here, I think that's all intentional. Because earlier on in the story, when we first have Quartermain sort of setting the stage and talking about his memoir, he talks about this is a story with with very few women. There's only a couple women, and depending on how you want to define a woman, and it seems like he defines women by whether or not they're someone that he would want to have sex with. Like he kind of says, you know, if they're marryable, then, then we can talk about so-and-so as a woman. But, you know, outside of that, there's very few, like, so <laughs> in that respect, it's a very sort of discreet sort of sexist kind of perspective on, on how, how to even define that. But he acknowledges that you're about to get into a story with a whole lot of like, uh, it's just going to be a sausage party. Like it's <laughs> the whole way through. It's going to be a lot of guys doing manly adventuring. And I feel like this erotic language is it's intentional, right? To titillate. And it may be him like pulling layers into the story while also like titillating people that are reading the story, like in the 1900, like in the, in 1900. Right. I would, I would like to think that 
you know, this is definitely the kind of language that would shock a, a, a more uh, modest, prudish Victorian era English person, I would guess, or, or even an American, I would hazard to guess at that time as well. So we see the, the gateway that they are there, that they are moving towards. So if we look at this as a Campbellian sort of journey, is, are they moving through the underworld now? Are they traversing the underworld or, or yeah. in a, in a symbolic way slash meeting the goddess, I guess, because they're moving toward Sheba, I guess. I think, yeah. Cause, cause maybe there's some even referential, there's some points about the desert being hell, right? Like I wouldn't wish this, this cursed heat, uh, dryness and, and presence of flies. It's like a ninth circle of hell. He doesn't say a ninth circle of hell, but he just says, he does say that, it's it's otherworldly and not something he would wish on fellow man. Yeah, I was just wondering if you guys had thoughts about that. No, I I definitely see it that way. Um, and it's here in chapter seven and eight that the lost world motif actually begins to appear, right? Because now we meet the Kukuanas. Yeah, so we have the the lot well. They go up Sheba's breasts, right? Mm-hmm. So so let's talk about that. So okay. They, they climb the mountain. They're still dying of dehydration, but they start hitting some snow. So then they start freezing to death. Right. They, One of them dies. Yeah. Vintvogel, the the uh, uh, the Hottentot. Uh, so Their tracker. Yeah. He's been, they get all the way up to the top and they find this cave. They've eaten some melons on the side of the mountain r- melons. Mountain melons. Yeah. <laughs> they get all the way up to did the you, top. Go did, ahead. Did you think it was odd that they found melons on this mountain that was described as a breast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then they uh, they shoot a bird out of the sky, right? Uh, yeah, it's a vulture, vulture, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But they're still hungry. And they just, they don't know if they're going to make it, especially when they spend this really cold night in a cave on the top of the mountain. And Vint Vogel, he freezes to death next to Quartermain in the middle of the night. He feels his, his life force leave this, this guide of theirs. And they find out he's dead in the morning and they find another body hidden in the back of the cave. Do they not, Luke? They do. Uh, the Portuguese fellow from like 320 years ago. Don Silvestra. Don Silvestra is there. He's like in a curled sort of sitting position similar to Vint Vogel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can actually see the bone that he used for drafting his map and the wound on his arm that he used for the blood that was the proxy for the ink on the map mm-hmm. is there. Like you can see all of the bits and pieces here. He's naked, right? Uh, and it's it scares them. It's, it is, you know, another horrific sort of set piece within the story here, but they piece it together. Yeah. They, at first they run away, they find the body and it freaks them out and they leave, they run out of the cave and then, uh, they go back in to see if this is sir, uh, Henry's brother, right? Neville. Yeah. They're, they're a little worried that it may be. Yeah. Nope. But it turns out it's just a Portuguese mummy. Don Silvestre. Who looks like he just died recently. That's weird, He's right? Kind of mummified, because he died in this cave where conditions are kept constant and microbial activity is non-existent. He has slight smile on his face. So I that. this sort of reinvigorates them. They know that things are going right. 
Yeah, yeah. They they hit a climax of the story here as they come over the breasts of Sheba, and they look out and see lush, verdant, open green space before them, right? That's right. Yeah, luckily. They can see lots here. I hope they were drawing a map. I hope so, too. Right. <laughs> Each, each, each grid is uh, five feet. They, they better have a, uh, a mapper within the crew, and they better establish their marching order. They, they don't. Kobolds are going to rip their beeholes. That's a bourbon and barbarians reference. They uh, end up on Solomon's Road after they eat some raw antelope. Oh, yeah. And then they find their way, sort of. They end up on Solomon's Road, but it's not long before they run into the... What are we calling them, Josh? They're they're the Kukuana people. Kukuanas, right? thank you. I almost said Kuanas, but uh, that is different. Kukuana, I guess. That, there may be accents. I I don't know. <laughs> my my Can't. Zulu is also rusty. <laughs> <laughs> but these are these people are living here on Solomon's Road. It seems to be quite the spectacle to these white guys. That's right. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> no, no, no. It is it is a spectacle. Uh because they the description of these people is that they are are of lighter complexion, right? And they also notice that uh they kind of have similar features to Umbopa. And uh they're they're alarmed because they notice that one of them has thrown a knife. Right? Don't they? They hear something clatter, and they can tell that this guy has thrown a knife at them. Uh-huh. This is the part where uh, Captain Good, Sailor Good, is shaving himself with some fat. Yeah, antelope in the fat. Water. Mm-hmm. So he's got no pants on, uh-huh. and half his face shaved. When these folks walk up, yes, and evidently he has his uh, uh, monocle. His monocle, in. yeah. <laughs> and we should establish the point that these British fellows have false teeth that they wear. Yeah, at oh, yeah. least He's one of them. Yeah. Good has a couple sets because it says he can trade them out, I think. Uh, and and that's a, a point of, hey, he's a true gentleman. Quartermain says as much. So Quartermain, I think, has a set of false teeth himself. Okay. Uh, you know, they're English. <laughs> <laughs> Think about Austin Powers. I guess I don't know. That's that's probably uh, offensive to our to our British listeners. So I apologize. We should for that. we should apologize to Nomad Jim right now. Say you're sorry to Nomad Jim. I'm sorry, Nomad Jim. Uh, but it's a trope that's being played out here in the story. Maybe it true. started in the story. I don't know. Written by an Englishman. Mm. Oh, writer. But I, they they sort of introduced themselves to the Kukwanas, right? Yep. And. They introduce themselves as wizards. From the stars. <laughs> yes, they come from the stars. That explains why, one, they're white. Two, they can move their teeth in and out of their face. And why you could, how you could have half a beard in, mm-hmm. like, the, like good does. And they can communicate, too, right? Like they studied up before they came yeah, right. to Earth. Uh, but and one of them says, but with respect, you, you don't know our language all that well, <laughs> which I thought was pretty nice. And they have magic sound tubes that can kill from afar. Yes. Uh, so, you know, they're, I don't know how to feel about this scene because it's awkward. It's weird to treat. I mean, it's not just because this is an African tribe that's, that has no experience with European folks. 
this would feel uncomfortable if this were a, you know, the first time Americans colonists met with uh, Native Americans, right? Like it just would feel weird. You, you know, they're, they're fabricating this whole story about being from the stars, but they're doing it so that the Kukuanas don't kill them. It seems really like I agree. It's incredulous. Like I was incredulous reading it because these uh, characters, the Kukuana are presented as uh, worthy sort of adversaries. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and not only do you want them to be smarter than how they're portrayed, but you expect it. Mm -hmm. Like they, they are, uh, real people perceiving things like when, uh, good is, sort of passing his hand over his face and popping his teeth in and out and making mm-hmm. them appear and disappear. That seemed pretty, uh, pretty hard to, to digest there. That's lame. Those, yeah. like, I, that is lame. Like, like that's uh, something you would see in a bad, like contemporary, like movie. Yeah. <laughs> now it, it's a, it's a little bit more believable to say, okay, I've got this magic stick that I can use to kill from afar with right. sound. Um, that's more believable, but you, I, I kept waiting for somebody in the Kukuana hunting party to say, no, he's just taking his teeth out. Like, look, you can like, see, you can see dentures the, around the edges of his hand. Or yeah. Something. Uh, or he, he cut part of his beard off for some reason. Like, <laughs> like they've never shaved before. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe not, but yeah, uh, this, this stretched the believability of the story yeah. for me. It, it took me out of it a little bit. what do you think, John? It's, yeah, it's ugly. <laughs> it's just silly. Like, in all levels of, like, even if they themselves don't cut their own hair, surely they've, like, uh, harvested game and tanned hides and removed the hair from other mammals. Like, right. Like, <laughs> for them to be fooled is, is a silly business. He's got half a beard and, and a weird glass eye and... Isn't wearing any pants. He must be an alien. The monocle and all that I can buy because they probably don't know what that. But yeah, the beard thing I thought was weird. The white people thing, I can get behind that. They probably haven't seen a white person. And he's got gloriously white legs, apparently. Right. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, the rest of it, it's just a bit odd. And it's it's kind of like I remember when I was a kid learning about the conquistadors and – certain conquistadors telling uh, Aztecs that they were Quetzalcoatl, you know, right. come, come back to uh, take charge or whatever. And when I was a kid, I was like, why would they believe that? Like, and I guess, you know, that, at least that's taught in history classes. So for what it's worth, it must've happened at some point, but yeah, this, this stretched the credibility of the story to me, but it doesn't matter because uh, now we've met the Kukuanas and we know we have to go north with them uh, because we're getting ever closer, ever closer to King Solomon's mines. What, what are you looking at me for? <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like that is a good place for us almost to wrap up. I, I agree. I think this would be a good spot. and It's where I start to get a little bit more fuzzy on the plot details. I listened to the audiobook beyond this point, but uh, 
it becomes a little bit mixed once they go to the corral mm-hmm. and then go further. So yeah, they're they're moving north with the Kukuanas. The Kukuanas are going to take them to their chief, and more so, they're going to take them to the uh, witch that they have, the wise woman who has lived for many generations. She's like two hundred years old. Um, her name is uh, is it Gugal? Gugala. Gugala, yeah, okay. not Google, the uh, internet god of knowledge. <laughs> want, want. <laughs> they're on the road. They're heading that way. Yeah. They're going to meet up with with this tribe. Well, no, wait, 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 wait. Stories. Do we want to? Do we want to wrap up here, or do we want to press ahead for another chapter? I'm I'm fuzzy on it beyond this, but if you guys want to go, go. John, uh, do you know what's up? This is where they get told the story of Umbopa. Yeah. And I know who Umbopa is. I don't know if you right. do, Luke. I, I'm not totally clear on okay. it. Okay. How about we wrap up here? Okay. Yeah, so. So we have passed the first obstacle of the story. Um, uh, we've heeded the call to adventure. We've gone on a quest. We've passed through the underworld. Uh, we've made it past Shiva's breasts. And now we have met the Kukuwana people who are going to help the party uh, by taking them into their territory further north, helping them get closer to their goal of the riches, the fabulous treasures located within King Solomon's mines. So we'll we'll wrap it up there. That's a good place to to come to a close. We can we can bring it home. I think next episode. I think that sounds very good. How about you tell them where they can find us on the internet, Josh? Of course. Uh, as always, you can find us on the web at http colon forward slash forward slash thecromcast.blogspot.com. We are on Twitter at thecromcast and facebook.com slash thecromcast. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Radio, many other uh, podcast repositories. I, I don't know where I'm Pod going. Podcatchers. Podcatchers. Fetchers, catchers, you know, things that grab. Yep, and you can call us, 859-429-CROM. We'll see you in the mines, comrades. Bye-bye.
stuff. Guy, guy so, stuff. Yeah. It turns out they're all robots. Oh, cool. Are they robots or are they androids? Nope, robots. Oh. Diamonds, robots. Robo bros. Robobo bros. Umbopo robo. Sheba's breasts. That's why I say, hey man, I shout. Let's play that song. What a great shout, man. Man.